Before we hear from Kidman, May is Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and this is my PSA to remind you to get your skin checked. Regardless of how much time you spend in the sun or how much you protect your skin, everyone is vulnerable to the harmful effects of UV exposure. But the good news is, your skin will give you visual signs of the UV effects. So I know it's morbid to put it this way, but the key to avoiding death from skin cancer is to know your spots. Keep track of the moles and spots on your body, and if anything looks suspicious, go get it checked by a dermatologist. I will give you the ABCs of how to do a skin check in a second, but listen to this email that came in from South Australia just two days ago. He said, quote, After hearing you talk about the topic of skin cancer awareness a few weeks ago, I booked a checkup at the local skin clinic. The dermatologist really didn't like the look of three moles and cut them out, quick and easy. He rang me with biopsy results yesterday, and two out of the three turned out to be melanoma. I am booked into surgery next week to get some extra margin taken out, but the prognosis is excellent because they were detected early. Thank you. The ABCs you spoke of were spot on. The only thing I might suggest to add or reinforce is to not wait for the E, evolution, before getting the expert opinion if any of the ABCs or Ds raise a red flag, end quote. What Brendan was referring to as the ABCs of skin checks are in reference to tracking the appearance of your moles and spots. A is for asymmetry. So if it's asymmetrical, go see a doctor. B is for borders. If the border is irregular, go see a doctor. C is color. If it's extra light or extra dark, if there's variety in color of the moles on your body, go see a doctor. D is for diameter. If it's larger than six millimeters, go see a doc. And E, of course, is evolution. So if any molar spot is changing, go see a doctor. But as Brendan in South Australia said, don't wait for it to evolve if it has any of those other characteristics. This PSA was prompted by Sunbum. Their ambition is to move the needle on skin cancer, and it really seems like they actually already have with at least Brendan. So good on you, Sunbum. And they've also made this episode completely commercial-free. So you might have noticed there's no pre-roll commercials. There will be no commercial break in the middle. We're just going to get Andrew Kidman straight to the head for 90 minutes uninterrupted. So... Thank you, Sunbum. You know your body best, so know your spots, keep tabs year-round, and then beyond that, just go see a dermatologist once a year. Okay? Thank you. On to today's show. Writer, filmmaker, and musician Andrew Kidman is our guest today. We reconnected recently when our mutual friend Dave Parmenter emailed to tell me to go watch Andrew's latest film, Big Sky Limited. I knew that Andrew had been developing this film and shooting various interviews over the past five years, but I really had no idea what the concept was or what to expect. And as with most of his projects, it is available as a bundle, a film, and a hardcover book. It used to be that the film was a DVD inserted into a sleeve on the interior cover of the book, 
but now the DVD is gone and it's just a digital link that you receive with the book. The first edition of which is limited to 1,250 copies. It features essays by Kidman, Parmenter, Bo Foster, and Andrew's son, Guthrie. It features interviews with George Greeno, Wayne and Noah Dean, Simon Anderson, Larry Gephardt, and all the art is provided by Barry McGee. And whether you buy the film and book or not, make sure that you go to bigskylimited.org just to check out the revamped site. You can also sign up to receive black hole transmissions directly from Kidman. And in preparation for this, I pulled up the Encyclopedia of Surfing, eos.surf to see if there was an entry for Andrew. And sure enough, there was. I don't think that I had read it before. About Andrew, it says, quote, bushy-haired, back-to-the-future filmmaker, writer, and musician from North Coast, New South Wales, best known for his soulful 1996 film, Litmus. Kidman was described by the Surfer's Journal as our equivalent to a roving medieval ascetic spreading his high-consciousness idealism to the four corners of the surfing world. Born 1970 in the Australian capital city of Canberra, the son of an economist father and nurse mother, Kidman started surfing at the age of 10 after his family moved to Sydney. By 15, the precocious youngster was interning at Waves magazine and competing in amateur surf contests. In 1988, he was the Australian junior division champion. Kidman became the editor of Waves magazine in 1989 at age 19, and while there, he met surfer shapers Wayne Lynch and Dave Parmenter, both of whom imprinted on the young Kidman an appreciation for alternative board design and an off-the-beaten-track lifestyle. In 1994, Kidman quit Waves magazine to focus on Litmus, a cerebral, earth-toned movie that was a stark contrast to the slash-and-burn, punk-flavored videos that dominated the mid-90s. Litmus, co-produced by fellow Aussie surfer artist Mark Sutherland, featured brilliant performances by off-center surfing luminaries such as Lynch, Derek Hine, Tom Curran, and Joel Fitzgerald. And it was set to eerie, moody music by Kidman's band, The Val Dusty Experiment. Litmus did not sell well, but it was critically acclaimed, built a cult following, and helped spark a look-back-to-go-forward movement in surfing. Quote, he believed that surfing pioneers should be listened to and respected. Bandmate Mark Sutherland later said, quote, he believed in twin fins and single fins and in shaping your own boards, whatever surf craft you were into. He believed in short that surfing could be much more than it was being sold as, end quote. So I think that that provides context to enter this conversation, especially if you're unfamiliar with Andrew. Also, just for additional reference, at the beginning of this chat, Andrew references where he and I first met. It was in Pismo Beach, California in June 2015, after he had just released his film, Spirit of Akasha. Today we are reconnecting, both of us at home, Andrew in Australia, myself in California, to catch up on life, analyze Felipe Toledo surfing, and discuss, of course, Big Sky Limited. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Andrew Kidman. But how are you going? Are you, is, your podcasts are going good, eh? Like it seems like it's all taken off, and 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's funny. My workload has not changed, you know? Like, I've been doing the exact same amount of work for 10 years. But now I think the audience is larger. Advertisers are um, lining up, you know? So I'm reaping the benefits of it more now. It's just my workload hasn't really changed at all. That's good. That's fantastic. I mean, you, I mean, all the time that you put into it and I mean, it's, I just think about that time when we were at that little cafe, you know, with Parmenter. Remember that? I do. <laughs> it's like you were thinking, I remember you telling me like, yeah, I think this podcast thing might be a good thing to do. And I was thinking, oh yeah, I don't even know what they are. You know, you probably had a, you probably had an audience of like one back then. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Really? Stoked for it. Stoked for it. Thank you. For the first five years, I had to explain what a podcast was first. Like it was cold calling people like yourself and then explaining what a podcast was and then doing the interview. And even then, I don't think they fully understood what it was, you know? No, and it's a, it's definitely a skill. I mean, interviewing is a skill, isn't it? So, because I mean, it's the one, the Parmenter was always saying to me, he's like, you know what, we, we should be doing podcasts. We should be doing podcasts. And I was like... I was like, oh man, I, I don't think I can do podcasts, you know, because I could see what was going on, and I was just like, I just don't know if I have have the um, because you need to be consistent, you know. That's what you, that's I think that's the one thing that you've been able to really do is be be totally consistent and always be bringing interesting things to the podcast, which keeps it out there. Yeah, and I do, I definitely don't have the focus to be like searching for that you know so that's what i was sort of i said yeah we might better do like one or two that were really good but then what do you do it's like a newspaper thing almost you know you have to keep coming out all the time so thankfully when i was learning how to interview people i don't think anybody was listening for those first few years so i probably got a hundred episodes under my belt before anybody really started paying attention and those who were listening didn't have any other options so i was able to benefit from that too you know had you done journalism and stuff like that? Or would you you just green, were you? Yeah, totally green. But I studied psychology in high in uh, college oh. and just had kind of a general interest in talking to people and listening and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you, do you find um, when you go into interviews, it's good to have the questions or do you like to just go in with nothing but your brain? I have a very thorough outline. Um, but I don't, I rarely stick to it. So it's like a framework doing, doing the outline actually just, um, obviously brings me up to speed on the project that the person's working on or their history or whatever. So just doing it is good enough. I don't really need to reference it from that point on, but often people will take the conversation in a much more interesting place than I would have taken it if I stuck to my outline. Yeah. So I think one of my skill sets from when I listen to other people, one thing I'm critical of is that the uh, interviewer infuses too much of themselves into the interview and the guest will start going somewhere interesting. And then the interviewer will interject and bring it back somewhere less interesting. So I've learned to kind of just let people go, you know? Yeah. Like Joe Rogan. Yeah, exactly. And some people like, like Derek Hind, You know, I did one episode with him and I asked probably two questions out of the two hours and just let him go rogue because 
he's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, and he just has such a he has such a scope too. So it's um, yeah, yeah. It's funny because when I mean, like you know, I sort of I did a cadetship when I when I started working at the surfing magazines. Like that's what I did. Like the journalism cadetship. That's what they called it. And I remember. Um, like the first things that I, they wanted me to do was go out and do these little interviews with people. Like that was my first job to go find pro surfers and uh, do like five minute interviews with people. That was, there was a thing called the five minute interview. And I would go in with these questions and cause I didn't know what to do. Like I was not, you know, I was, I was pretty young and I had these questions and I'd go in there and um, I just found the interviews were so static. And then by accident, you know, within those couple of years when I'd first started, I forgot, I left my questions at how I forgot them. You know, I didn't have them with me, you know, because you're pretty nervous when you're doing this stuff because they, they were like, you know, elite pro surfers. And I forgot my questions and I turned up and I knew my questions because I'd written them down. And the interview was just so much better, you know, like cause what you said, it just let, like I asked things and then I just let them talk because I had nowhere to go. I didn't have something to go back and reference constantly. So, yeah. And from that time on, I never, I've never gone in with questions again. And to the point of where I feel slack almost, you know, like I think, oh, I'm not prepared or I'm not this or I'm not that. But the interviews have always, I've just let them roll. So I let, because it's about the subject, isn't that really in the end? So. Yeah. And I think early on, I always steered the direction of the interview towards surfing. And I learned five years ago or so that um, I don't need to do that and that, listeners actually don't care if we talk about surfing. They're interested in hearing from, you know, surf world luminaries, but about real life, uh, real life things. And so maybe it is board design or it's surf tangential, but it, it might, um, if they don't want to hear about contest wins or stuff like that, you know? Well, they already know that so, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. They want to... And it depends on the medium too. Like podcasting is different than print, uh, interview. And so I think we can be a little bit more far ranging with these types of conversations. Oh, for sure. 100%. But well, it's so quick, you know, like prints, print something that you like, I mean, it's always been edited too, you know, like when generally when you read a print interview, it's all the waffles taken out, <laughs> but sometimes mm -hmm. that waffles, what's actually really interesting. Cause you hear the person's personality within that, you know? So yeah, it's somewhat, yeah, they're kind of podcasts are interesting cause you, um, it's it's almost like sleeping, you know, like they're kind of dreamy in a way. Like when like sometimes yeah. I listen to them in the shaping bay, and they just sort of like meander along, and and then someone will say something, and you're like, oh wow, and you really your your ears pick perk up on it, and then other times they're talking, and it's just sort of white noise, you know, and then you're back into it, and they're definitely it's definitely a cool form. So I was yeah I was you know Parkinson obviously don't you yeah yeah like for me that like growing up watching that was just like that was probably my favorite show was him coming on telly and and doing those because they were so candid they were kind of like for me they're kind of like podcasts because they were just so candid he'd come on that television show and just talk to these people and they were just that was sort of the first like real interviews i ever really saw and i just was so captivated by that stuff like you know so. um what what has been your experience uh, interviewing tom curran uh, he's, yeah, he's, um, he's definitely interesting for sure. He, the, 
I don't know. Maybe because it's he knows me. He's um, like people say that he doesn't talk much or doesn't have much to say. Like you've probably heard that, no doubt. But um, I find when I've interviewed him, he's if if he relates to what you're asking him, like he he's really um, what is it? He's really accurate with his descriptions when he talks about things, you know, and he's really thoughtful. And then he and then he really tries to um, answer the question. That's what I found with him. So, and he doesn't. I mean, he's got no need to make anything up either or make anything more elaborate or he just, you know, like I've only, I think I've only interviewed him twice and both times I interviewed him, he, like the questions were, you know, they were pretty pertinent to what like I wanted to hear. So I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't trying to get anything out of him that um, I didn't know that he couldn't answer. So, you know, like, I mean, one time I was asking him about, I didn't. There weren't like long interviews or anything. I just like I was asking him about his dad and like what what his not so much his recollections of his father because he wasn't around during that period. But I was asking him about like what he knew or what people had told him about um the way Pat's are like why I'm here. So and it, <clears throat> you know obviously he he people had told him for years like what his father had done there and stuff like that. So he really had a you know he really had a um an accurate answer for that stuff, you know? And then the other time I was just asking him about like, you know, periods, um, cause he grew up, you know, I mean, most people understand like what era that he grew up in, but like he grew up riding like single fins and twin fins. So I was really interested to know how that developed his surfing and, and why, you know, and I, I think you can really see it in his surfing the way he does surf that he came from those boards. He didn't come from thrusters, so yeah, um, that's what I wanted to know. I just wanted to know what, what, how that influenced his surfing and the way he surfed. And then he, you know, and then he got. What was interesting is that he then got on to the people that influenced him, like the surfers, you know, like people like Rabbit and Michael Peterson and stuff like that, because he, you know, he was they were looking at, you know, the Californians or the Americans were like looking at, you know, people like Michael Peterson and Rabbit, especially where he was from because he was from Santa Barbara So because they had the points. So they were looking at these guys that were surfing points and it's just interesting because you can see it in his surfing, I reckon. Like when you watch Tom surf, he just has that, like I, sometimes I, I just, it's almost like you're looking at Rabbit, you know, or you're looking at Michael Peterson when he surfs, you know, because it's, it's this... Um, minimal minimal lines you know so or music i asked him about music but like you know the music stuff was um i mean pretty standard you know like he 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 thought that music was um very similar to surfing which i mean we all know that so <laughs> you know it's it's interesting to think um that a surfer's primary influences stay with them throughout their entire life. Like, even though I haven't seen Tom ride a single fin, maybe I've seen him, I've certainly seen him ride twin fins lately, but um, he grew up on point breaks and those influences are still prevalent in his surfing. Even though the vast majority of times I've seen him, he's riding a thruster and often at a beach break, you can identify those things that you said, you know? Yeah, well, I think, you know, they're 
they're your primary learning experiences, you know. So I mean, I like I kind of get it. Like I like I grew up riding single fins too. So and it, even though they were in the foam, like they were foam surfboards, but I spent years on them, riding them, like learning the nuance of how they go, and also how you have to like find the points on a wave to make them work and. It definitely, um, it's definitely different to thrusters. Like it's so different. Yeah. So. Totally. It's um like, I mean, jumping off a single fin onto a thruster is like not a hard thing to do, but it, but um, you definitely have to ride them completely differently. But it's interesting though, because you do, I I find that you still take that line that you learn, on a that you you know, because there's certain lines that you learn on, to take on single fins, and I. And there's moments on waves where you realise that you can take that line and you just do. Like maybe it's because it's so ingrained in you to take that line rather than going to the bottom and then doing, you know. I mean, I've heard some weird stuff lately about that. I mean, I read it somewhere that, you know how they talk about that double pump bottom turn on a thruster? Yeah. Tom Curran was like, he invented that. And I was like, is that true? Like I... I just don't, it's, it's a weird thing because it's like when I don't think of your surfing as having that in it, but then when you... No, I don't either. No, but it's interestingly, when you watch him, sometimes he does it, you know, like sometimes he'll do it, he'll run out, he'll run down and then run out a little bit and then he'll go, you know, and then other times he doesn't do it. Sometimes he'll just run the run the higher part of the wave for speed, like a more of a single fin line, so... It's, it is, it's quite interesting watching, like seeing that stuff, so... I, I can envision him doing it at Huntington Beach and places like that where the wave's really soft, but it's not as egregious as the one that people are referencing critically when they say, oh, you know, Adriano de Souza has a double double pump bottom turn. Because Adriano or whoever the criticism is, well, he, it's he, like he, multiple, it checks off the bottom. Well, I'd, I'd say that Adriano is one of the people that doesn't have a double pump bottom turn. <laughs> like he... He holds his bottom turn. That's his his bottom turns is unbelievable. Like I feel like like if you well, were... who, well then I'm not sure who the best example would be, but you know what I'm saying. Where people are like checking off the bottom and getting almost no speed. It's like a ticky tacky type. Well, you know what you know what they're doing that, don't you? They're doing that to why get, is that? Well, they're doing it to get the speed under control. That's why they're doing it. Because when you come when you drop when you drop down the face like on a thruster like that so fast. You do it so you can, so you can get the speed under control. So you're not going too fast when you're coming back up the face. So you can do your top turn. Does that make sense? It you, does. Yeah, yeah. And see what happens to when you on a single fin when you come off. I mean, you can do the same thing on a single fin, but if you tried to do it, it would spin out. Like probably as you did that little check thing, it would probably spin out on you because you put your front. You know, you pull pull the front part of the rail, and it'd probably spin out. So, um, it's. And also when you do it, so when you when you hold a long bottom turn on a single fin, what you, what that's doing is the rail's, you're slowing down. So by the time you get to the top, it's harder to do that kind of like that top turn that like professional surfing does and gets points from. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's actually what's happening there. So you tend to, and you know, like on a single fin, you tend to come up and either do a vertical reentry or you just blaze the speed off and then get more speed down the line. Whereas a you know, thruster, you go and do the turn. You do that tight, tight pocket turn, you know, which is 
that's definitely what Tom was so, I mean, that's what I felt was such an incredible thing with his surfing was that, that tight turn that he could do in that top part of the wave. So, yeah. But you kind of, um, but that's, yeah, that's what's happening there. You know, like on the, on the single fin, it, you actually slow down to where, by the time you get up to that top part, you've slowed down too much to pull that, to have all that speed. So that's, that's sort of why they're doing that check turn on the bottom. So when they start coming up the face, they can get there going fast. Does, it, does that make sense? So Yeah, totally makes sense. Because um, you can, you know, you can hold your rail the whole way through on a thruster if you want. But just by the time you get up to that top part of the wave, you're going really quite slow. Because <laughs> so, you haven't been able to yeah. get a little angle and then shoot back up. So Right. So it's, um, but yeah, I don't. That's what I, you know, to be honest with Adriano, that's what I always found kind of fascinating about his surfing. He was, he would just hold these like massive, like long, especially at Bells, he would just hold these like huge, like long bottom turns and just drive, like get this drive and then come up and he'd still do those, you know, I think maybe because he was so small and compact, he could get, he could do that kind of snap up in the top. So, yeah. But yeah, it is interesting. Do you watch much, uh, championship tour surfing at this point not as much as what i used to it's um like thank i have a record thing now like i'm lucky i have this thing where i can record it and i've generally i'm generally fast forwarding through most of it if you know like if something you know i don't yeah i don't find the surfing that it's just the same it's just so the same these days you know like i kind of I don't see much different. I couldn't tell the difference between now and five years ago, really, to be honest. So, I mean, I like seeing somebody like Callum Robson come through because it, it, he seems to have this unique body structure where he's really strong, and you know, to see to see what he did in that last event was just like fantastic, you know. So, like to to go, you know, like I saw those waves and I was just like, wow, look at this, you know, because it's kind of yeah. And because that's, I mean, anybody could have done that that day if you got the right wave, but he got him and he did these. It was just, just, I just, you know, something like that's great to see because he's, he's obviously not a, you know, like a heavily sponsored guy or, but he's still a great, so he's kind of reminds me a little bit of Oki, you know, like when Oki came through when he was kind of young, he's just really solid and, you know, well built and he does, he does really kind of heavy turns, which I, I've always loved that kind of surfing, I guess, so. Because the aerial, I mean, the aerial thing, it's not, I mean, this is, it is amazing. Like, you know, Philippe and Gabriel and all those, and Italo, it's, it's amazing to watch it, but it's like, I don't know, I can't relate to it because I don't, I don't really aspire to try to do any of that stuff. Whereas someone that's sticking to the wave face, I can still imagine what that might feel like, I guess. So, yeah. So it doesn't make it so, better or worse. That's just me, you know. So, so you think your interest in the, championship tour has waned because the surfing has not progressed is that what you're suggesting uh, well, the surfing the surfing's it's progressed in a certain way it, it's just not i just don't find it that interesting because the boards are just they're just they all ride the same boards so it's like they all yeah. the surfing all ends up looking the same um nobody i mean the cut you know a few years ago john got john florence got that little advantage over everybody because he had that he put that forward wide point up in the board and suddenly he was able to like do those things, you know, at Margaret's and places like that, that kind of, you know, that blew people's minds. 
and then you know at sunset and then I think Philippe's got a bit of an advantage over people because he's got some flex thing going in the board at the moment and that's why he can get so tight so I find that pretty interesting so what I'm not familiar with that what what's going on in that board um you know what to be honest I don't exactly know but I know they talk about it so they they is something going on with the audio no not at all I'm just looking at my notes I know they um I know whatever um I know whatever boards he's riding, they talk about having some flexible component in it. And when I, okay. I don't know, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't, I mean, I saw one at a factory a while back. I couldn't tell what it was, but they talk about this thing. And I think when you see him, so, you know, when he does that turn, like a really tight turn, he did that, <clears throat> he did that one turn at sunset this year where he was like right in the pocket. They didn't really score it even because it was like he didn't do another turn, but it was just, it was so in the pocket and like so tight. And I was thinking there's only, the board must have been flexing to be able to get that tight inside the pocket hmm. a certain way, which, I mean, if you're riding flexible boards and you've worked out how to ride them, you, you've got an advantage over everybody because they're just, they're just, they're better, you know, they're, but that's, it's such a hard thing to get under, um, get under control that flex so I guess if they've worked that out they've you know they're really I mean I, I, I mean that's probably why he won the world title last year because he you know he had better boards so you know. I'm gonna look into it yeah I was unfamiliar you should, you should talk you should talk to those guys because I mean they might not want to talk about it because it's obviously given him an advantage so yeah um I think I've Jack seen him Robo riding rides, does Jack Robbo ride him too does he ride the same yeah he just got he just got picked up by them uh, this year. I think it's the first year on those boards. But I've seen um, Felipe riding like dark arts construction surfboards, which are I would think stiffer. They're the carbon fiber um, vacuum laminated. But yeah, but what you're talking about sounds different. Not necessarily because you um, you might they might be stiffer up the front, but they might not be stiffer in the tail. And that's to me, that's what it looked like with that board. It just looked like he was able to drive the rail and get like yeah. load out of the back part of the board. And then when he did that turn in the pocket, he was able to um, just push on it and and it was it curved to the wave face like back in. It's only it's only minute, but I mean all boards flex. So like yeah. you know your standard boards with stringers in them flex, but it's where they flex, you know? So it's kind of, it's interesting that he um, was able to do those turns. I mean, I might be just tripping, but it just seemed like he was able to do that stuff, you know, so. Yeah. You know. Um, speaking of flex, in the book, there's an image of somebody holding like a nine foot Greeno EPS uh, edge board. Yeah, that's Gus. Hold and then the next page, the next page shows you riding one, and I don't know if it's the same one or not, but I was just wondering if uh, if you ride a lot of EPS. Um, not really. I mean, okay. I do because of George's boards, like because his boards are all EPS, so I ride that. Yeah. Um, my own stuff, I don't do it. Um, I have done it. Like I, when we were doing Edge of a Dream, like there was a lot of EPS going down in that because... Um, George, that's how he makes them. Like he makes, he shapes them out of EPS. And then he was like recommending both to me and Ellis like to get into them, which, you know, Ellis is into it heavily. Um, I made um, some, I made the same boards out of it, like that I had in, in, you 
you know, standard construction with the stringers and stuff like that. And I just didn't like it. There was just something about it I didn't like. But but in saying that, that board of jaw just goes unbelievable. So it's just, but that could be, that's a different shape altogether than what I was messing around with. So, but it's just, it's just a feeling. Like I kind of, I, I, I really um, like surfboards that have wood in them. Like, cause there's a, there's a flex, like we were talking about the flex, there's actually a flex pattern in them, you know, that, those boards that George has, doesn't have a stringer. So, I mean, I could put stringers in the APS, if, but I just, it's just one of those things. I just don't, I don't, haven't got around to it and I haven't got the time, but that would be definitely something worth doing is trying to put a stringer in the APS and then, and then feeling, seeing if I could get the similar feelings out of that. Cause it's a, you know, it's a great material, like, um, as far as flotation goes, so yeah, Dif hard to hard to keep. Um, I mean, you've really got to look after it too. I don't, you know, I don't know if people understand yeah. that, but like, you get a, if you get a crack or a ding in an APS, like your board's going to sink. So you got to be really careful with it. So. Yeah, I guess it'd be better to ask them about the virtue or Greeno or Ellis about the virtues of the EPS because. Um, I've given them a shot, you know, I've ridden five or 10 of them throughout my life, or I've owned five or 10 of them throughout my life. And, uh, I just don't like them as much as I like PU. And I've had board builders kind of dampen the effects and add different, um, fabrics and in the lamination process to attempt to dampen it, to make it more similar to PU. But even then I feel like why try to make it like PU? There's gotta be inherent virtues of, that Greeno is tapping into that make it, uh, better, you know, and unique in its own ways that, uh, allows it to do things that PU could never do. I'm just, I haven't tapped into that yet. Did you put stringers in them? Yeah, I've had both. I've had stringerless and stringered. It's interesting. It's, a, I mean, the, if you want to, I'm in a, like, I, I, I ended up having discussions with Palmer about it because I couldn't work it out. I was just like, I don't know why it's just like what you said. Like, <clears throat> I don't know why this because I love the way PU feels and I'm mm -hmm. like, uh, and I'm going, you know, the shape's the same, everything's the same. And, and then I'm, I was like, why does this board just not like, just, it, it just, I just don't like the way it feels, you know, and it sings, you know, you can hear it singing. Like it's got this thing when you go across the water, it goes Dee -dee 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 -dee. like it's, which Parmina then explained to me, it's like, it's cause it's, cause the structure of the foam is, um, on a PU is tighter, right? And the EPS is like little round baubles of things. So when things are hitting it, like the the it's the way it carries, the momentum of it carrying. So that's the yeah. And you feel that when you're riding it, you feel this little thing like. So it's just that's what you're feeling, and I guess you know for someone like me who's ridden PU my whole life, like I've, I'm used to that feeling and I like that feeling, and and so when I jump on the EPS, I just, I just don't, I don't like it, you know, and I've only got like a finite time to surf, so I want to ride stuff I like, you know, so. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I don't, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't um, foo-foo it because it's like, um, like what you said, I, I, there's like that board that George, that nine-footer that George um May that board's just incredible, you know. I mean, that might have something to do with the size. Maybe that's why it works, because it's a bigger yeah. surfboard. Maybe it's got a. I mean, it was glassed, like Mo glassed it, so it's kind of. 
his glassing is just like next level as far as like glassing goes. So he might have he might have done things within the glassing process that like got it closer to the to you feeling. But the, yeah, that board's like like I had I had I've had waves and feelings on that board where I just like I I definitely wouldn't. It's way more similar to um, a PU feeling than just like when you jump on an APS board, like that board. So, Interesting. I don't know what, don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, maybe it's just because it's such a unique shape that you that you've yeah. you've jumped into this realm of um, that you've never felt anything like that before. So suddenly you're in a realm of like a feel, feelings you've never had. You know. Yeah. But I find that the carry of that board's amazing too. Like it actually carries. Because it is heavier, like it's definitely heavier because it's bigger. So, yeah, and that, I think that's got a lot to do with what that's probably the issues you're having with PU too. Because they're so they are light, you know, they're so light. Mm. So you're losing that, um, you're losing that uh, momentum on a wave when you know you take off on a wave, and if a board's got a bit of weight to it, it actually that weight carries. Whereas when it yeah. doesn't have the weight of the PU, you know, because the PUs are light, they don't. There's no momentum there, you know. So that maybe that's just those feelings. It's not so much the materials. So. I, I've grown to love weight. Like oh, when I was yeah. young, I thought chasing <laughs> lighter boards was better. No. And I even remember board builders weighing boards and bragging like, oh, this thing's only four pounds. And it's like now, the heavier, the better, you know. So every year, Bales Beach, like that's what I see. You know, I just see boards wigging out all over the place and you're just like, why don't, the boards are too light, you know, they come, yeah. they've got this huge piece of energy that's come from so far away, you know, like, pro, you know, proper Southern Ocean energy and then you got bump and wind and everything and you're trying to ride it on some little lightweight surfboard and you just see it, like you just see the surfers going into turns and the whole thing just wigging out on them and you're just like why don't they just put a bit of get a bit of weight on the boards like the turn would be yeah. bigger like i think that's what you see if you go and watch surfing like you know from the 80s and 90s at bells i think that's what you're actually seeing you're seeing these guys that are riding like heavier boards and you're seeing them like actually you know being able to harness that all that energy from the ocean into that board and then the weight carrying the boards and then carrying the surfing, you know, like Oki and Curran, when you see those guys surfing bells, it's just this really even, and the boards don't wig out on them. Whereas today, I mean, the surfing's, you still, the surfing's still amazing when they get it together, but just the number of times you see a board just like wig out or spin out or do something weird on the wave, it's just, and then you just, it's all, to me, it's obvious it's the weight you know or it's, a, or it's got too much concave in or something but it just yeah. um i mean morris is probably the best one to talk about that he could tell you he could tell you about that stuff so because he you know he lives there and still surfs there so yeah but imagine i don't imagine his board's being too light so yeah no he talks actually about that even his like high performance short boards he talks about making them indestructible you know trying to laminate them heavily and use thicker stringers and stuff like that well there you go i mean he's you know there's i still hear stories of morris making waves from like there's a certain section like you can take off up out in front of rincon and get all the way to the beach and i still i still hear stories from people that morris is still making that section and yeah. I, I don't doubt it you know like i he's such a good surfer and he's and he's such a you know he's his boards are like get, just getting better and better. I reckon, like every time I see one of his boards, I just, I just think, wow. Like now he's starting to combine all that stuff that he was doing in the seventies with like modern, modern stuff that he learnt through the, 
90s and 2000s. So now he's just like his boards just look phenomenal to me. So that you know, and he if he once he start you know he definitely understands like glassing and all that sort of stuff. So I wouldn't doubt that he doesn't still make that section. You know, he's in and he's in his 60s. So he's yeah. probably making it with so much. He's probably making it with so much speed now that you know, like you, if you blink, you'd miss it. I reckon. So. It's funny to think about how long it takes to really refine the skill of shaping in this case. I mean, his surfing too, but um, there was a documentary 15 years, 10 years ago, 15 years ago called Hero Dreams of Sushi. And it's about a, you remember the sushi chef in Japan? And he's been making uh, sushi for 70 years or something. And he talks about it took him 50 years to figure out how to properly cook rice. I don't doubt it. <laughs> rice is hard to cook. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you think sushi's pretty simple, but it's like, no, that's how sophisticated and uh, the level of refinement is that he's going for is rice itself, you know? And so when you hear Maurice is kind of starting to figure it out now, oh. everything's coming together. It's like... I wouldn't say he's it's kind crazy. Of, I, I wouldn't say he's kind of figuring it out. I mean, his boards have always been great, but it's like he's the, the thing. What he's getting to do now, probably like the sushi guy, is he's getting to put all these things in there. You know, like every bit of knowledge. Yeah. Like, and that's what I reckon I'm seeing because, I mean, the fact that he's put in like, you know, he went through like Morris went through the seventies. He shaped great boards in the seventies. You know, like he, I, I'm sure Morris came in. And, in the 70s from surfs and went this is the greatest board i've ever shaped and it probably was you know for that yeah. time and then now he's able to like draw on those elements of feelings that he had then and with all the all the other knowledge he's got now and and put just put that little element in there you know like put that little yeah. forward bit of foam that'll carry you and like you know he was talking i seen him talking about a beak nose the other day which cracked me up because i was like you had beak noses in the 70s <laughs> you know <laughs> so it's like he's gone back and he's gone yeah now we can combine that with that you know so that's yeah i don't think he's just starting to work it out i think his boards are just getting to a level where they're just like never they're just so good you know like yeah. they've always been good you know but now they're just going getting going to other levels you know and yeah it's combined you know because what it's it, morris is so interesting because he he um he he did all that stuff with Karen with the reverse v and then he went completely opposite and did those like huge concaves and they both work. They both work incredible. So it's kind of like, so what's he doing now in his bottoms that, that are now making these boards like even better, you know, like that's the interesting thing, you know, like has, has he gone subtle? Like, you know, I, I, I love when I come across these boards, I love looking at them because they're, they're, he just, he's such a good surfer that he, he can go out and test them and know instantly what's going on you know so yeah. and he you know he works with you know great surfers too like ross and he's worked with tom obviously and he worked i'm pretty sure he did stuff with oki i'm pretty sure he did eh? like i think those boards in france were his shape too i think uh, margo there you go <laughs> margo taj yeah well there you go so it's like you know you get in you get in pretty good feedback from guys like that you know especially when you can yeah it's cool it, yeah morris is classic so i do want to talk about the book yep in the film can you tell me how you landed on the concept i mean when did 
the things that you're discussing in the book and the, in the film, when did they congeal for you into the into the concept of a book and a film? I mean, it took it like it. I mean, it, 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 I probably couldn't have come up with um, concepts and ideas like that until like now, really, because I I don't think I was old enough to understand any of that stuff, and it's just it's only through age that you really. Um, can see what's happening i think you know because you because you don't like prior prior to getting older you don't have the experience and you and you really don't have the um you just yeah you don't have any of that knowledge to draw on to to do something like what i just did i guess so i mean so yeah it was it was probably um it was and it was it was realistically it was only like really late in the because i you know i worked on that for five years that film probably longer but it was only um really towards the end of of the of it that i realized what i wanted to say within it you know so and it kind of and and one of the you know it's it's a funny one but one of one of the um one of the main things was going to the wave pool so you know which people would you know i mean derek hein just can't believe that like i'm enthusiastic about the wave pool but um he hasn't been, so he probably doesn't get it. But, um, yeah. Well, say, say more. You said uh, two things that I want to hear about. What is your response or um, what are your thoughts about the wave pool? But then also you said it wasn't until the end of the process that you actually figured out what you were trying to say in the film. So what were you trying to say in the film? What was I trying to say? Well, I think, I mean, this. we've had this discussion before, like you asked me like with Edge of a Dream one time, like what, you know, what were you trying to say with Edge of a Dream? I said, well, you got to go watch the film, <laughs> you know, because I know, you know, it's if I go and tell you, I knew you're going to answer that way. Oh, well, it's just, it doesn't serve my purposes to, to like explain it here because, um, you know, it took me like, it, it actually took me it, like my entire life to unravel what I was trying to say in that film. And then I had to, I wrote it like because it's a scripted. That's a scripted film, and then I had to sit there and narrate the entire thing, and which is such a hard thing to do, like narrate something because you know then you go back and you're watching it against the footage that you've got, and you know, in part the footage is explaining things, and in part. Um, what subtitles are explaining things and then your narration explaining things and then and then you and then you realize that um it's not cohesive and then you've got to go back and do it again and and go back to the script and rewrite it again and and it and it took me yeah it took me a long time to do all that stuff so it's and then you're compressing it into like you know the film's like 52 minutes so you you're compressing all this information into 52 minutes and then and then um yeah, I can't really. There's no point trying to explain it here, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so, you know, you're better off. Well, let me, let honestly, you're better off watching it and then try. Like I've had people come back to me already and tell me that like I need to watch that movie again because I like I I I I think I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not sure. You know, I need to go and watch. I need to really try and unravel what's going on there because it's fairly complex. I think so. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going. Well, so. Let me ask it a different way then. Yeah. Uh, rather than the conclusion that you landed on, yeah. What What did you? Uh, what was the concept for the film when you started it? Oh, well, we, I didn't have one. Like I had no concept at all. Like I, I didn't, and I didn't even have a. Um, 
I didn't even have an idea that I would make another film. Just to be to to be truthful, like, um, I mean, I'd I'd done Edge of a Dream and I and I'd done Beyond Litmus and those two projects to me were like fairly obvious projects to do because they were fascinating things. And um, this film's nothing like that. And so I didn't have an idea. I, I didn't go into the film with any idea. Like I didn't say, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. But um, when we started Big Sky, um, when we started doing stuff with Big Sky, like, you know, all the kids were hanging around like Ellis and Bo and Credo and Noah and that, they were all sort of around this area and they were all, you know, playing music and, and um, you know, all surfing and stuff like that. But they were all, so you could see they were like, um, trying to do something um, interesting with their surfing, you know, like trying to break break up their surfing in some way, you know, like and, and try and like, um, and not just the um, not just the actual um, I don't know what you'd say, like the gymnastic side of surfing, where they you know like doing the biggest aerial or getting the doing whatever, like the biggest turn. They were these guys are such good surfers that I'd I'd imagine that that kind of stuff gets pretty stale pretty quickly just chasing that sort of stuff so they started you know like they started like looking at surfboards and like i oh, like is, is that surfboard going to make my life better you know and you know credo started messing around with different boards and and then you know bo was around and he was like looking at um maybe shaping you know like he'd shaped a couple of boards and he was thinking yeah we could shape and and um so we we got on board with Big Sky and helped him do it. You know, like we sort of like facilitated that side of his like um, interest really. Like we helped him, um, you know, we helped him make the boards and, you know, we put him with different shapers and helped him like learn with different shapers. And then we, you know, we paid for stuff too. So, and that's, you know, that's probably the hardest thing when, when you're learning to shape is um, finding the money to be able to do it. I reckon, like I'm, like I mean, I've shaped my whole life, and realistically, I've probably only shaped myself maybe ten boards. <laughs> no way. Well, because I can't afford it, you know. And and this is something like I used to talk to Wayne Dean about this, you know, like, um, like Danny would, like, with Danny would come out and hang out, and he'd like look at a board that I'd made for myself, that you know, it was my new board I'd shaped for myself, that I was gonna, that was gonna be my board I was going to ride for the next couple of years or whatever and Danny would he would really relate to that because he 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 would say to me yeah we like we used to ride the boards for years you know because we couldn't afford to make another one and and I knew exactly what I was talking about because that was me you know like I'd make this board and I'd ride I just would ride that one board for years because I I couldn't afford to make another one and I'd but the and like, but what he said about that, which is really interesting, was that that helped you like um, understand the nuances of everything about that surfboard, you know. And and it also like, it also like made you think about like, oh, what what's what way will you go the next time, you know? So, but it also like, I can see how it would also like hinder your development because you couldn't you couldn't like, oh, I've got a new idea, I want to make another one now, I want to make another one now, I want to make another one now, you know. So that. That's kind of what we helped Bo do, you know, like we helped him, um, you know, if he wanted to make a new board, we helped him, you know, we helped him facilitate that with paying for it and then 
Because it's not just short boards, like, because you got guns and then you got everything. You got knee boards, you got body boards, you got all these kind of boards that you want to make. But, but, and you get off, you go off on those tangents. And, and, um, I mean, a good example of that's like in Edge of a Dream. I mean, Ellis probably made, like, you see it at the end of the movie, you see this, like, just this extensive crew of surfboards and they're all Ellis's boards. And, like, I think there's two, there's actually one board of mine in there because I only made one board. <laughs> Because that's all I could okay. make, you know. But Ellis just went for it. He just made heaps of boards, and he was breaking boards, and he was char, you know. And <clears throat> in some ways, it's kind of interesting because you you got a young guy like going for everything and trying everything and all over the place, and then you got this other guy like obviously I'm older than him, but I just sort of zeroed in on a couple of things and focused on that, you know. So it's you know, and that but that was what Bo was. He was this kid learning to shape and and that's what you know that that was sort of the genesis of what i thought the film could be you know because i i thought that that was a really interesting thing to to study a kid and see how far down the line he could get with shaping like in 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 a in a amount of time you know so and i think that's what you yeah. that's part of the film definitely you see you do see that in the film but but it didn't end up being the that's I guess that's one message in the film. So I mean that was the part I know that was the part you were interested in for sure from what you said. So Yeah. I think there's a lot of messages in the film for sure. Um and it ends up becoming about a lot of things. But if I had to con you know, um have like a central theme in explaining it to somebody else, it seems to me like the film is about the surfer shaper experience. You know, like building your own board, writing your own board and trying to distill that relationship is really, to me, what that film seemed to be about. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the film, yeah. the film, but it's not as much as it's about the surfer shaper experience. It's about the, it's about the lifetime of a surfer shaper's experience, you know. And so, like, that's the thing. Like, if I had just gone in and um, taken that little little moment of bow which was like you know we worked with him for five years so i went and took that and just made that film about that that's interesting for sure you know like that's a um that's definitely an interesting thing and it's valid and that's why it's in the movie but there's a lot bigger idea than that going on in the movie because you've got these guys that you know started shaping when they were like 15 years old and then now they're in their 80s and they're still doing it so that's the that's actually what when you see that, that's when you kind of go, oh, wow, this thing's like a, this is something that you do your entire life, you know. So Bo's like on the, he's like, he's at the start of it, at the start of his journey and you and we get to see like um, how quickly that you can put yourself in that place, you know. And, like, and this is what I do talk to people about like constantly, like friends that are getting into shaping or people that want to get into shaping. Like I'm just like do it, like get in, do it, start doing it. Um, and find the time to do it, and 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 there's no reason why you won't still be doing it when you when you're in your 80s, because these you know these people in this film are doing that, you know they're just still captivated by it. They're still trying to make something better. They're still um, they still know it's like the sushi guy. He's still trying to make his rice better. <laughs> like crazy. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember um, the first time you met Bo? Um. Yeah. I do. Yep. Yep. He came out to the, Alice brought him out to the house 
and he was just a young guy. He was um, he was kind of funny. Like he, I mean, me and Ellis were messing around with the board. Like I was, I was um, Ellis was shaping a channel bottom, I think, and just out at the house because I like I always love channel bottoms, and I think I was talking to Ellis about like, oh, you should should try and make a channel bottom, you know. So he was he was making a channel bottom, and um. I've got good examples of channel bottoms out here, so he was looking at them and and trying to like you know thinking about what the possibilities were to replicate that in a channel bottom. And Bo came out and he he's pretty quiet. He um he he ended up going into the shed and I got I've got those Neil Young songbooks in there, and he, which are really old, and he ended up going into the shed and like and trying to work out some of the songs in the Neil Young songbooks, which are pretty cool. Like I, I would come out of the shaping bay and he'd be in there like with this little, he had my acoustic guitar and he was in there trying to trying to work that stuff out. It was pretty classic, you know, but. Was this after um, he was sponsored by Hurley and had like a pro surf run? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This, okay. This is way after all that. This is. Um, okay. I think he was on Ruka actually. I think he was surfing for Ruka maybe. I mean, he had a Ruka t-shirt on, so. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, he, yeah, he, I, but yeah, it's funny. I don't, like, he, he talked a little bit about the, the, the pro surfing stuff. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm not sure. You'd have to talk to him about that stuff. He never, he never went into detail about pro surfing much, you know? So. Yeah. Um, have you ridden any of his boards? Have I ridden both? No, they're too small for me. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I kind of. I mean, he's. Um, he probably is a little lighter than what I am, and then all the all the all the um, boards. They're they're all. I mean, other than that, the one that the large, the bigger one that you see in the film. I mean, I could ride that board, I guess. So, but even that board's it's probably too narrow. Like, I, I mean, I know I can I know what they go like. I can see him. I don't. I probably don't have to ride them. The, I, I, actually, I did ride. I rode one of his boards, but it wasn't. He didn't shape it. It was the. It was the stuff that we did with Simon Anderson. And I rode that one day, and it just went incredible. And I was just like, "Oh yeah, there you go." And he, it was kind of interesting because it like he's like, "Oh, you got to have a go. You got to have a go." And I was like, "All right, give me a go." You know, even though it's too small for me. He said, it's the best thruster I've ridden. It's probably the best thruster I've ridden. He's just nailed it, you know, because they made it together. And and I caught like two waves on it and it just felt seamless, you know. And I, and I just got back to him and I was like, oh, there you go. I said, it's fantastic. You guys were able to elevate something, you know. So, um, But, yeah, it's that board's amazing. Interesting character that you uh, – he's in the film, but he's in the book a lot. Uh, is Larry Gephardt. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people know his name. I know board builders do, but I think a lot of my listeners probably don't. Can you kind of explain who he is? Um, well, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a fin maker. Like that's, that's what he's, um, that's how he earns his living. And I think that's how he's always earned his living, to be honest, as well, part of it. Um, I know he's done other things as well. Um, but as far as surfing goes, like that's how he's he's eked a living out, like through doing that. And he was like Larry was, you know, he was there back in the day with Steve List and Stanley Plaskunas, 
like at the cliffs when they were when they were um when they were you know like concocting that fish design like he was there you know he was there building the fins for them and I, I think he was I mean you'd have to confirm all this but I'm pretty sure he was making the fins out of fiberglass possibly then like um, the boards I've seen have got fiberglass fins on them so um, but yeah he was right there doing all that and then he he's he makes them out of wood and um he does that he, he told me either why would you put a why would you put something on a surfboard that doesn't float <laughs> and that's what and that's why he makes them out of wood which to me is the fascinating thing to say and but then i've also like heard other things from you know other surfboard builders that um that the fiberglass does different things the way it, the way it um cuts through the water and but see larry's fins are like wood and fiberglass you know but if i took one at see the thing is if i took one of larry's fins even though they got fiberglass on them and i threw it in the, in the cow bath which is what i do <laughs> it would float so whereas if because you, it's a wood core exactly but if you threw a um if you threw a fiberglass fin into the cow bath it would sink so um yeah so i agree you know i agree with him i look i, I I also feel that I've felt the flotation of the fins in the back, you know, like, I, I mean, this is just me surfing and I feel like I can feel like this, especially on the, um, that green edge board I built with the twin fins. Um, I can definitely feel this thing that like lit, like feels like it lifts in the tail. Mm. And is that because the fins float? I don't know. It's hard to quantify what's going on there. Like, I've talked to me and Palmer, like Palmer probably knows, I'm still trying to work it out. And I'm in conversations with him about that stuff. But in my mind, I feel that the the flotation in the in that, and it, you know, it's probably so minor, but it, it's still doing something, you know, so. Um, yeah, so that's what Larry does. He's, a, he's this, um, and he's, yeah, he's, he's craft and, you know, he's, what is he, he's in his seventies and he's been doing it you know his whole life you know so it's his it's pretty like i just find it amazing that these people are still working in this in this um it's not an industry really is it an industry i don't know it's a hard thing to say people go to the surfing industry and i don't really know what that means because um but i guess it is but it it's more this it's just this love of craftsmanship i think that's what i that's what yeah. I, that's what i find with these guys you know because they're not really i mean it's not that none of them are wealthy from it <laughs> like definitely well so the corner the corner that you're working in and the corner that larry's working in is not an industry <laughs> that's kind of that's what i feel like i don't like people talk about this thing that's a, i don't feel like that's what i'm involved in you know so i'm not you know what I mean? Like there's, there are, I think there's a hub in Southern California that was the clothing surfing industry. And there's little hubs that are board building industries too, of people who are manufacturing boards and shipping them internationally and fulfilling the whole nation's retailers orders. But, uh, everything else is fractured into yeah. really small little bits. I mean, that's a nightmare for everybody really that, you know, I don't, I don't really like that to be honest. It, it really yeah um well it's hard because it, it um i just feel that you've got 
you've got these like um, surfer shaper glasses like all all around the world in these different places and they um and they're just being like run out of run out of their businesses because they the markets have been flooded by um imports that um are just cheap and and then that's the standard that they're expected to come down to because people go well I'm not prepared to pay the price for your surfboard, you know, but then this, you know, like it's, it's pretty hard to get a surfboard glass in Australia, like properly, like under, you know, under 700, $800, but that's just the time it takes for these, for these, you know, little businesses to like actually, you know, and the costs associated with rents and, and, um, the materials and time and all that sort of, and none and none of these got like I look at all these you know these little manufacturers and stuff like that none of them are rich so it's not like people say oh yeah what seven hundred dollars oh that's a rip off and you're like but it's not but none of these guys are rich so I don't know how they're ripping anybody off like they they're all yeah. just, they go to work they work six days a week and they they do a job that's like toxic um, that's incredibly hard. Um, and they're dedicated to it, obviously, because they're still doing it. And and then, um, but and and then people want to question their prices. But then, at the, and the reason for that is because you have a surfboard that's sitting in a shop that got manufactured in a in a plant somewhere for like five hundred bucks, you know, so, yeah. or, or less, you know. So it's kind of yeah, they're not doing anybody any favors, those people, including themselves, because they've <coughs> they're putting their stuff on sale all the time. So. You know, yeah. it's just this race to the bottom of who can sell the um, cheapest surfboard, really. So I don't, I don't see how that helps anybody. You know. So. Well, I think um, it ends up squeezing out the kind of mid-tier shaper is kind of what I've seen. The guys who are making boards by hand and doing five or ten a week, but charging fifteen hundred dollars a board, are still in business because people. The consumer has the perception correctly that those are um, handcrafted, high-quality products, and they're willing to pay for it. The massive manufacturers who are doing it overseas have a whole different economic model that works for them, so they're still in business. But it's the middle guy who kind of scaled up production and expenses and has to kind of compete with the commodity boards. So he's not able to sell them for 1500 bucks. He has to sell them for a competitive price, but his expenses are so high that he can't you can't run that business anymore, you know. Yeah, oh, it's an it's a it's a it's a, a can of worms. <clears throat> it's a can of worms, David. To be honest, because it's yeah. I mean, now you've got this whole thing with the computers too, and it's like, I you know, I just I don't get it. To be honest, I don't I don't understand it. To to be completely honest, I don't know why. If you wanted to be, if you wanted to become a good shaper, why you would suddenly go to computers it doesn't make any sense you know because you're not learning anything like you don't even learn how to shape i mean you might learn how to use a computer but you don't don't learn how to how to physically shape a surfboard so i don't i don't understand it but. um there's an argument though that the computer is a tool like a planer is a tool yeah, and learning that is a what I've heard that before. And learning that, that learning that computer is a craft. And, um, 
has just as much kind of, I don't know, art in it once you get to understand it as yep. the handshape. <clears throat> That's fucking bullshit. Sorry. Have you ridden any of those boards? They probably go great. I'm not saying they don't go great, but what I'm, what, what I'm talking about is if you don't put the time in using the tools to shape a surfboard, you're never going to learn how to do it. So, and the tool, you might take up the tool as your computer and go for it. Like, I don't care, but you, that's all you're going to ever learn. You're only going to ever learn the, um, the, how to use a keyboard. So, yeah. I mean, like, and the only reason I can talk about that and the only reason I know that is because that's what I do. I go into the shaping bay and I shape everything by hand and every time I come out of there, I realise that was just an opportunity. That last two hours or four hours or whatever time I spent in there was just my opportunity to learn something. And, and I did learn something while I was in there um, because I'm, like, I'm always trying to learn something and I'm always trying to get better at it because it's so hard. And and I come out of there and I just I, I feel grateful that I've had my shaping bay like down the bottom from where I live, and I can just go in there and I can just work on work work on trying to get better at something, you know, because it's such a hard thing to do. And um, and I know that I, I know that it's you know I mean I say it in the film that's the only way that you can get better at this is like time on tools, you know. But but you're right, you know, you are right, like you could spend all that time on a computer and I've talked to Simon Anderson about this too. And he's, he spent years on the computer, like trying to learn how the programs work and everything. So he could then take those, just those fulfilled designs that he created, you know, like back in the eighties and, and the nineties and stuff like that. So he could get them onto files so he could then reproduce them. And, but it took him years to do it, to work out how to do that with the, with the programs and stuff like that, you know, and now he, you know, he can now, get these boards exactly how he wants to see them and stuff like that, which is, you know, it's great for someone like Simon because he's, you know, he's, I mean, there's, there was points there where he was shaping 10 boards a week, you know, by hand from scratch. So somebody like that, you know, they, they know how to do it. You know, he put all that time in, he learned how to do it. He, you know, like it's, it's different for someone like him because he, you know, he put all that time in and he, and he got all that knowledge, you know, so that, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm not, talk, you know, I'm not, if people want to go and, you know, if some guy feels like he wants to go and work in some program and pop a board out and then, you know, come in with a gauze and finish it off and get a glass somewhere and then go ride it, that's great, you know, good for him. But he hasn't learned anything about shaving a surfboard. So that's all I'm talking That's all I'm talking about. I'm not foo-fooing the programs or how they work or... Or what I'm not I'm also not fulfilling what comes out of the program because I I can see that the boards are obviously good, but the thing that you gotta remember there is those designs they don't come from you, they come from all the people from the past that did all the work for you to get to that. So I wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> well, um so. you said that you've only shape 10 boards for yourself over all those years how often are you building boards for other people um i mean i said i said last year that i would make 20 boards as for customs i would do 20 and i never i didn't even get there so i, I think i ended up at about 14 maybe the year before i did a few more because the covid thing was going on and i couldn't go anywhere and um 
there was definitely more orders during that period and you know people were getting all excited about everything and and um the cost of everything hadn't gone up at that point either so you know boards were pretty cheap i reckon so i definitely i probably did 22 maybe that year that's why i said i'd do 20 the following year because i did i thought i'd done too much because i've um i don't want to i don't really want to be shaping boards to be honest so where does the conversation begin when somebody orders a board from you um well i ask them why they want it to start with that's the first thing i ask them like what 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 exactly do you want this for and then if they come back with um the the right answers like they under they understand what the designs are and and what they're trying to do then then we can go further with the discussion i guess so because it's like you know it's like i was saying to my mate the other week like i've you know i've only got so many boards in me physically so because it's such a physical thing to do and that that year that i did the um the covid numbers like I, my shoulders i ruined my shoulders from it and i couldn't i wasn't couldn't surf i couldn't move my shoulders and i was just like um i just didn't i, I didn't think that it was worth it to be honest like i mean i'd rather save that i would rather save my shoulders for me <laughs> Gotcha. And the boards I want to make for myself, you know, so, yeah. um, I just made it like, and the, and the reason I know that it's the surfboard chafing that's doing it is because, uh, and it, you know, and people say to me, oh, you could get your boards on machines, just put your boards on machines. But, it, but it's actually that, it's actually that action that ruins the, your shoulders is the final action of the, of the finishing. So if, even if I had, even if I put these designs that I, that I'm happy with on a machine, that's the finishing of them when you're doing the, when they're doing that leveling thing and you get that RSI going back and forth, that's what, that's what destroys your shoulders. And, um, yeah, I just don't want to, like I said, I'd rather, I'd rather save my shoulders for something I want to work on in the future, I guess. So, but I, I will, I'll entertain the idea of making boards for people if they, you know, if they're obviously if they're willing to pay, pay for them but also like if they need them you know like I've, I've got friends too that you know they're some of my oldest friends i just i'll just make them a board you know i'm not gonna it's not about money or anything it's just about they need a board you know so i think all shapers are like that you know like you've got you've got your friends and people that you love and that you've spent a lot of time with in over the years and you, you know obviously you do anything for them so it's sort of like that's that's a different thing you know sure um i asked you where the conversation begins and you know you uh, and you you answered it that way by saying what do they need the board for yeah and i think i think Bo maybe in the book talked about every board that he built at big sky he had a very specific intention for before he even built it for sure yeah and I hear that ethos through so much of what you do, you know, like it's nothing is frivolous or wasted. It's kind of things have purpose, which is why I was surprised when I asked you what was the concept for the film that you didn't answer it with a lot of direction that you said it was kind of this nebulous concept that kind of came together in the end because I expected everything has purpose, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like I said, I didn't have a, like when, when I went into the, started making that film i didn't like i never had any ideas for it like i don't 
I didn't even know I wanted to make a film, you know. I just, I, what, what happened was that um, I went to my mate Dave, who's my partner in Big Sky, and I, and I, Dave's like somebody that um, he, he was somebody that like long, uh, you know, very, very early on in the piece, like contacted me and bought a photograph of me over 30 years ago now this guy bought a photograph he came in he bought a photograph of me he was interested in my work and this was at a time when nobody was interested in my work so he came in and bought this photograph from me and then since that time i've had i've had a relationship with this person um on an interest level in my work but also like as a friend and when i um I wanted to try to get all my work like in one place because like like I was saying like today my work's everywhere like my music's like all over the place like I can you know I can find my music anywhere I can find my I could, up until like about three months ago I could find my films anywhere like people were just able to take my films and upload them all over the place they were able to pull my films apart and upload them all over the place I was I was spending all this time like going into YouTube and contacting YouTube and going can you take that down please like that's not that person's film like and the the crux of all that is it's like that's all my work and I haven't I, like I don't get anything for it so like I get no I get this like minimal re remuneration you know like these weird little amounts of money that come in sometimes and I said to I was talking to Dave about it and I was just like I would just love to be able to get all this stuff because it's like you know I've been doing I started doing this stuff like in 1985 and I just want to be able to get it all into one place and and have it all in one place so that if people really want to access it or look at it or they're interested in it, they can um, they have to come there to get it, and then they have to pay for it because it's like it's you know that's my work you know so and I think most people want to get paid for their work so and so that's what we started doing we 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 um we started sort of like going back and forth on like what. Um, how we would be able to do it. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty boring shit, really. But out of that, he he was like, oh, we should, you know, we should kind of develop more. You should be able to create more work, you know. Like, you should be able to keep making films. So you should be able to keep making music. And, and you should be able to keep making, like, surfboard designs if you want to do that. And I, and I said, yeah, well, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to keep, like, I've got albums I want to make. I whether I make, I do have another film I want to make, like I'm working on it, but it's nothing to do with this thing. And, and I do want to create things. And then out of that came like, well, maybe we should work with someone like Bo, or maybe we should, you know, which is a traditional thing for, you know, because for one of a better word, a surfing company is to like work with other people and stuff like that. So that's where came, Bo came into it, you know, and then, you know, we all work with filmmakers and photographers and all that sort of stuff. So then, you know, we started filming stuff and collecting material and that's sort of, that's how it came about, really, the genesis of that stuff. But I definitely had no idea of what I, what, what I was making. Like, I, I, I didn't, didn't have a clue, to be honest. So, I mean, I could, so this is the thing, David, I could have, I could have taken at any point along that road of working with Bo, like, I, you know, I worked with him for like five years. I could have, at any point, I could have pulled out and I've still got like just like hours and hours of footage like sitting in the vaults, but I could have pulled out something out of that and just chucked some music on it, put a bit of interview up and chucked it up on YouTube or chucked, you know, sent it to Beach Grid or yeah. 
whoever, I could have done that at any point along the stage. I could have done that and gone, oh, look at look what we do, you know, but I just didn't feel that that served any purpose at all, you know, because I was looking at, I look at everything that's out there and it's just, it's just this, there's no context to much of it. It's all free. It doesn't, like, it's just, sat, like, we're just saturated by it all and I can't, I kind of, I didn't want to, do, that's just not the way I make a film, you know, like, I, yeah. So that's why I never did it. So I never put anything out. Like I was sort of, and it's, you know, and to the detriment, probably to the detriment of, of Bo and all those careers, like um, I wasn't able to put that stuff out, you know, like, and, and I mean, those guys, you know, they probably wanted to like be bigger than what they were or whatever, because, you, you know, everybody wants to be this. and But I couldn't, um, I just couldn't see the point in doing it, you know, and, you know, and that you know, at the end of the day, like with with you know with Bo, like Bo doesn't work with us anymore. Like he's out doing his own thing, and that's great. I'm stoked for him, you know. But he, you know, he said it to me at one point. It's like, oh, you're just you're just too slow, you know. Like you're not moving fast enough. And I was thinking, well, I'm just moving as fast as I can move. <laughs> you know, like, this is. I'm sorry, mate. I'm doing my best. You know, like so. Because I, I don't know, like well, you know, we see this, we see this modern world that we've landed in, and like everybody wants everything tomorrow. Everything's, you know, somebody. I mean, Mason Hove friggin' runs over a rock. He's on the internet the next day, and everyone's going, "Wow, look at Mason!" You know, like, and I'm the yeah. same. I'm like, "Wow, look at Mason!" You know, but that's not me. So, um, well, I just you're. Um, I'm certain. I think your website said that there's 1,100 copies of the book printed. Is that true? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. It. So, uh, the film is, comes for free with the purchase of the book. Yep. But I'm certain. For, yeah. Only for a limited time. That's what's sort of interesting too. You know, it's like we've had to, you know, once upon a time the, the book came with a DVD. So people were able to like, um, have that movie forever, you know, but that's where you, that's where you're running the problems today because people would take the DVD and like upload stuff out of the DVD onto the internet because they thought everybody needed to see it, you know, and it's like, well, that doesn't help us. <laughs> and you didn't make yeah. the movie. <laughs> so it's like, so yeah, so now there's this, and I mean, I think that's why, I think that's why we find with these streaming models with the, you know, like um, Disney and, and who, I mean, there's millions of them now, but like you, you find that they only have things for a certain amount of time is because you come in, you pay for it, you get to watch it, and then it disappears from their catalogues because the people that are licensing these films to them um, have to be able to like continue to make money out of it, you know. So if they if they keep it for themselves, then they can, you know, they can make money in the future out of it. And I think that's what I'm seeing, and, and I think I mean that's how we have to be, you know. Look, you get to you get to watch the film, you. Like you get three watches of the film if you want to watch it three times, and it's there for three months from when you purchase it, and then it and then it's going back into the catalog for the future. And I don't know what we'll do with it after that. So. That was that was going to be my question because I really feel like when the book is sold out, there's still a great demand to uh, of people who want to watch the film. So I'm wondering if you've considered what that next release model would look like. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't know. Like, it's that's okay. The, I mean, that's what we're that's what we're trying to build with Big Sky. Like, that's that what I was saying before. Like, that's we're trying to get this all into one room, 
And so then you can come into Big Sky and, yeah, you can watch Litmus. Um, you can watch Glass Love. You can watch Lost in the Aether. You can watch Spirit of Akasha. You can watch all the films I've made, including the new one. Um, but predominantly, I mean, if you... I mean, it's you know, you've got both things. You've seen the film and you've got the book. Like, you, I, I believe you need the book to understand the movie. So yeah. that's my opinion. That's why I, that's why I spent five years making the book as well you know and 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 the writing in the book and that's you know like what dave parman is talking about in the book like it's 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 a thing that you know i've always said they're car manuals to the films the books and and that's i really believe they are you know like when you buy a car yeah you can drive around in a car it goes great but as soon as it breaks down you need to consult the manual to work it out you know and that's that's what i feel the books are you know they're the they're the they're the next part of it, you know. So if you want to, yeah. if you really want to understand how deep this stuff really goes, you know, like that's, and you know, and even in the book, we're still just scratching the surface, I, I believe. So, because um, it's because surf, you know, surfboards and and the and the and the future of like what what we could do on waves or where we can go on waves and stuff like that. It's just endless, you know. So it's kind of. And I, we're not even, I don't even, I said that today, Parmenter, the other day, I said we're not even close to knowing what we can do, you know. And yeah. I, I think you see that with that Greeno surfboard, you know, like that's something that he, it's something that he, that spawned from his edge kneeboards in the, in the 60s and, he, and he's brought it back and, he, and he's, um, he's put it on people's radar again, like, you know, in now, like that's a long time ago. What is that? 60 years ago <laughs> and he's put yeah. it on people's radar and you're looking at this surfboard and and you're just going what the hell's that you know like but all, everything in that, that board i mean i caught <laughs> it's pretty funny it's sort of it's almost nice because it's still a mystery but i caught i caught a couple of waves on that surfboard that i've never felt anything like that in my life i've never gone as fast it's never made i've never made a drop so easily on a big wave and it's not there's no evidence of it there's actually evidence of it because you see the speed at one point like in an aftermath because my son filmed that but he missed the takeoff okay and that's cool it's kind of cool because it's that's my memory of it but it's just like that's i've never felt anything like that on it in a design and i sort of think well that's george's first attempt at that thing you know like hmm. he, you know that's him just and that's what you see you see him shaping that board in the film and that's his sort of, uh, you know, that's, he's about eight or nine boards in, I think, as far as that bringing that edge board thing back. But that's first his first attempt at like bringing one down to like in the nine foot range to like try to catch big waves on. And the thing's just phenomenal. So like I can't even begin to imagine what could happen if, if, if everybody started messing around with that. <laughs> I mean, Twiggy Bakes, yeah, totally. from Twiggy Bakes messing around with it, you know, with Jeff Bushman and I mean, Bushy's a I know he's got his head around it, you know. So like, I just yeah. you're gonna see. It's more the fins, I think. Like, I think they've got to start looking at the fins rather than worrying about the the bottom shapes on on those guns, because because it seems to me like the fins are hanging them up in the air. But hopefully they work that out before there's too many more wipeouts. Um, is issue number three of Ace Tone in the works? It's out. Issue number three. Yep. Yeah. I haven't seen it. 
Dude, I have not seen it. No. Well, that's the good thing with the book. You, everyone gets some... I was saying to Sam yesterday, Sam Rhodes, who's the editor on that mag, and I was saying, yeah. like, because I pack all the books and ship them, and it's like wrapping up fish and chips because I get the acetones or the acetones, and I, I put the book in the middle and I wrap, I put two around it and then put it in the package. And so, it's yeah, perfect. So everyone, yeah, it's perfect because, I mean, the best thing about it actually is it keeps the book even safer, like it stops it getting damaged, and then people get the mag, you know, so... Um, and you, they get two copies, which is sort of like, I don't know, it's like giving away stickers, I guess, back in the day. So, yeah, it's, um, it's they a, gotta be psyched when that shows up. Yeah. Well, the Japanese will, because it's got, um, it, a lot of it's been uh, translated into Japanese as well. So they got a, they got a, this Japanese translation for, for a lot of the stuff that we, <laughs> that we did as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was, I was asked, I, Acetone or acetone was that was a fun thing to work on this time because it was just quick. We just did it quickly. We didn't make it to because um, I had so much material there from doing the whole project with the film and that. Or we just did something fun and quickly and and um, you know Barry did the art again for it, which makes it really fun. So yeah, yeah, it's cool. I had a I in my notes too. I didn't get to it, but um, I was just. It's so cool that you get to work with Barry McGee on all these projects. It's a great little partnership that you that you've got going. Yeah, it's fascinating, eh? It's actually it's fascinating working with the guy. So, cuz it's um it's so interesting what he comes back with when like, you know, I mean it was the cover of Edge of a Dream for me is just like you know, you've seen that like George sitting it's the in, best. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like, it's one of like when that, I don't know if I talked about that back in the time, but when that happened, it was Barry was sending through stuff, you know, like he sent, you know, he's famous for his heads and stuff like that, but he was sending through these heads and I was sort of like, yeah, I don't know if I want to put a head on the cover, Barry, you know, like it's kind of like, I know that's what you're known for, but I'm not sure like um, that's what this is. You know, and he's like, "Well, what? If, what? Tell me more. Tell me more." And I and I was like, "Ah," oh. I said, "You know, like George just sits in the bath every night and thinks about like surfboards." He goes, "Does he?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and he drew this like tiny little sketch of of um, and it's just sent. He must have done it in like two seconds, but he just drew this. And he said, "What like this?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Like that." I said, "Can you do that as the cover?" And then that's what he did. He sent that back. So amazing. Yeah. And then it was the same with this one, like um, with the big sky one. It was like he, when he was out here, we were, um, he was staying with us and we were, I don't know what we were talking about, but it, it, the subject of like spaceships came up and I was telling him about this spaceship I'd seen when I was like, you know, 16. And, and he was like, what did it look like? You know, and I, I drew this picture of it. And then he, there was a book there and he drew it he drew a picture of he said i've seen one too and i said oh really i said oh what did it look like and he drew this picture of it and then he had it in the book and i was just like far out you know and then when i was like thinking about like what what i thought kind of big sky was or what what this project was like i was thinking about that spaceship and i've i came across this little drawing that barry had done in my book and i was just like oh that's big sky <laughs> 
I just, and I asked him, I said, can you draw that spaceship? You know, so then we went back and forth for like weeks, like him trying to get it right. And, and, um, can you shut, can you shut that? Family's just getting up. But yeah, yeah, we just went back and forth and, and he, yeah, he was struggling because it wasn't something that like, it wasn't something that was in his, um, realm of like, he could just knock out, you know? And, yeah. And um, but then he can't. Yeah, he just nailed it in the end. I reckon I, I love it. It's it's, a, it's such a whimsical idea, you know. So yeah, can you tell the story of seeing the spaceship when you were sixteen? I don't think I've heard that. Yeah, for sure. Like I was um, so I was I was working in DY. Like at this, I used to work in a chicken shop. Like like I was still going to school, and I used to work in this chicken shop at DY. So I had to catch the bus to to work and it was like a I used to work like Sunday afternoons and and I would like the shop would you know you'd be serving hot it was hot chickens like rotisserie chickens and then I had to catch the bus home and I I was staying I used to like stay at my mate's house like up at um, Little Narrabeen and they had a house like on Little Narrabeen it is the next beach uh, north of of North Narrabeen but it's a it's on a cliff and the bus was like the bus was used to run along the main road and I had to what I had to do is get off the bus and then walk across the uh like the playing fields that led up to where their house was to get home and it was you know by the t- it was a winter it was winter time because it was getting dark getting dark it was probably like about I'm, I guess it was about 6:37 because like I could see all the lights on in the houses and I and it was definitely dark and I, I was walking across the uh, the footy fields like looking out to sea because the house like looked over the sea and this spaceship like went across the front of the um like from North Narrabeen went across the top of the headland like right straight past my mate's house and then just disappeared and there was like these it was gold and there was these like little droplets like falling off it and I was just, I was just like, what the fuck, you know? And then I ran, like I, I ran to their house, which probably took me like maybe 10 minutes to get to their house. And I got in there and I was just like freaking out, obviously. And they were all just sitting in there watching television in the house, right? Because <laughs> their house like looked straight over the ocean. So they would have seen this thing go straight across the front of the house, you know? And there's only about, there's seriously only about eight houses that are on the top of that little headland there and then it goes to bush and then it goes to the beat back to beaches so that's like their houses would have been the only ones that saw it and then i was like then for the they never saw it because they're watching tv you know everyone was watching the news that's what i figured afterwards because then i started asking everybody like around i said did you see that spaceship you know like nobody saw it and then a few months later i i, I saw my mate greg shipway and I and he saw he'd seen it. He'd he'd actually been up on the t- he'd been up on the top of the hill because there's a car park up at Little Narrabeen. He like he he lived straight across the road from that in another house. Yeah, he he saw it. And then I was just like, and so I've carried that my whole life, you know. So, and there's you know Dale Egan. It's interesting because Dale Egan, you know Derek Hines' friend Dale Egan. He um he he's. He's seen something very similar, and he lived down at Monavar, which was like, like, a bit north of where we were. And because Derek talks, he always talks about this spaceship that Dale Egan saw, and I, I don't know, it might have been the same one, I don't know, but 
it was yeah it's it's in the big sky um laminate yeah the little spaceship up in the corner of the big sky laminate that's what it looked like to me you know it's in the oh, okay you have yeah. a look have a look in the book there's the laminate in the book the little yeah. well that's not it there that's barry's one obviously but yeah 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 um, but if you look in the laminate there's a little spaceship up in the corner with these little gold little gold droplets coming off it because that's yeah it was it's hard to um yeah it's really hard to have seen that to be honest <laughs> how so oh well because it just it there's obviously other life forms out there to me like people could say, oh yeah, that's bullshit. You didn't see it, whatever. Like and dispel it, but I did see it. So it's kind of like having having that in your life, and you it just you know you realise that that there's there's other things out there that that we obviously don't know about. So so I mean you know you hear about it all the time, like spaceships, UFOs, whatever. Like it's always conspiracy shit. But like just having you know, I'd love to see another one to be honest. <laughs> I mean. I understand what you're saying that it's hard to have it in your life, but it's probably a good thing. It's probably a healthy thing to understand that we don't know everything. Oh, yeah. no, it's great. It's a great, I mean, for me, like I've, like I've had that in my life, but it's also like, it's hard for me when you're talking to people too, because you yeah. don't, don't, there's so much more going on than what we could ever understand. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think so many people are in pursuit they think that they can know everything, you know, and they've, oh. they think they can be masters of their domain and that's a futile effort. And it's probably healthier to realize that you have no idea what's really going on with anything, you know? Yeah. Which gets you back to, I mean, that just brings me straight back to music or straight back to surfboard shaping. It's like, you're just never gonna, doesn't matter. Like I could, and this is why people like George and Mo and these guys are still doing this stuff is because they, they know they can't, then they're still striving for that to, to, to get there, you know, they're still striving. Yeah. And that's the same with me, like with music, like I'm still, like I just, every time I play guitar, I just feel like I'm just, I can, I can learn something new or every time I get with the guys with the band, I just, I'm just like, oh God, I've got to get, I need to keep practicing. I need to get better. I need to learn more, you know, and, and it's the same with the shaping. Like every time I shape, I just, I, I feel like I, I, I could learn more, you know, and I could, I, and that's what, that's what makes it so special and so fun, you know, is, is it's the learning, you know? Yeah. So, and same with surfing, surfing's no different because like, I, I feel like I'm getting better at surfing, if that makes any sense. Like, even though I'm yeah. apart physically and I'm, I'm, um, everything's, you know, I'm getting older and, but I feel like, I feel like I'm understanding more of what's possible and 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 going after different things you know and those you know those things like doing a backhand re-entry or doing an aerial or whatever like yeah that's in the past and do i want to even do that stuff now like i don't even care about it which is i could do it if i felt like it but i just first of all i don't feel like doing it and i don't really i don't I, there's other things i'm going after like other sensations that are that are that are even more fascinating so i can't imagine yeah. what it's like for someone like george you know like got what he's still going after you know so totally you know because he's still doing it so um final question is what was the last surfboard that you rode 
I think we had this discussion. I said I couldn't talk about it. <laughs> Didn't I? Did I say the same thing last time? I probably did. I think you you may have. Yeah, can't talk about it. How often are you surfing? Um, I surf. Um, I these days I surf as soon as I see the surf's terrible. I I go surfing. So that's that's when I'm going surfing. So which is. For my son, is an absolute nightmare because he's just like cannot believe he has to surf the worst waves that have ever broken on any coastline. But I told him, I said to him, I keep telling him, I said, that's how you get good. You want to get good at surfing, ride shitty waves. So because then when you get in a good wave, it's really easy. So and he's definitely he's definitely taken that on board. So because it I mean it teaches you how to um, riding really shitty waves teaches you how to read the ocean properly. So yeah. Um, and like it's you know, and for me, like because I'm at you know, I would say I'm at a fairly high level of surfing, so like you're trying to make the you're trying to make your surfs more complex and more interesting by riding shitty waves and seeing if you can do it. So that's what that's what I'm looking for. So, and there's then generally there's no one out, <laughs> so, so yeah, so. By contrast, when the waves are getting good, do you avoid the beach? I'd go. I don't avoid the beach. I'll I'll go fishing, or I'll go walk my dog, or I'll work. I I work. So, I mean, if they're really big and good, I'll try. I definitely try to get out in the ocean because, like, I know that that's definitely challenging. So, but if they're like, um, you know, if they're like three foot. Five foot, whatever. I don't, I don't even bother. It's not worth it. So it's just, um, it's too hard. It's like to have like um, the memories of the waves that you've surfed when it's like that, and and then, and it's not even so much like. It's more like you you're on a good wave, and you and there's it's the it's because people don't really know they don't. I think what's happening these days is that people project their experiences surfing on you as you're coming down the line and they just think this guy's not going to make that because I wouldn't make that so they just paddle straight through the middle of your line and then the wave's over because it's you know where where I want to take off is they're generally fairly critical places on waves so you you kind of um yeah you've only got one line that you can take and if someone paddles through the middle of that you're done you know like you've either got to straight yeah. you either got to straighten out and get washed in or you got to run the risk of like hitting them in the head with a fin because they've decided they're going to paddle through your line which you don't do i end up just having to straighten out and then you've got the other guys that want to don't think that you're sitting in the right spot so they want to paddle up the inside of you and then they um then they're too deep obviously and so it's kind of it's a shit show. So I just I just avoid it. I just avoid it because it's like you know I would I would think anyone like probably my age would probably avoid it because it's um you have these memories of when you were able to like have a surf in those sort of situations where you just go and put yourself in the right spot and you're going to get a barrel. You need a twenty second barrel. <laughs> Do you know what I yeah. mean? 
<laughs> no one paddles in front of you. Nobody, nobody tries to paddle you further up the point to get that wave. Like nobody, nobody's in your line. You just like get to take off with ease and pull in the tube and get barreled for twenty seconds. So, you know, I think most people are still chasing that, despite the crowds. They're they have not, um, they have not adopted your policy of just trying to surf crappy waves. That's a first. Well, good. <laughs> I, tell you, I feel like you're putting surfing, putting me on a bit. No, but surfing crappy, I, you know, I'm not trying to sell crappy waves because crap, crappy waves are really, really hard to surf. So, yeah, it's like that's the hardest. If you want to, like, if you really want to challenge yourself and become a really good surfer, like, go surf crappy waves. That's all I'd say. So, you know, that's you know, that's kind of why the wave pool is cool because it's. You know, like you, you have these opportunities to surf all these different little waves, and and um, nobody hassles anybody. That's that's what I like about it. So I, so, I mean, I write about that in the book. Like I just like that's sort of what that when I saw that whole thing going down, I was like, isn't this amazing that like because people have to like look at each other and say hello to each other before they go out into this little arena to ride a wave they're actually respectful of each other and and they they're actually hooting each other and they don't know each other and and then you've got all these other people on the inside like safely riding these little waves on foamies without worrying getting worried about getting run over by people it's just like a little zone of respect rather than kind of what surfing's turned into these days you know it's just like a free-for-all so you know that's what I, that's what i that's what I like about the wave pool is that, you know, not, do yeah. I like, do I like the fact that it's mechanical and do I, the fact that it's concrete and in the middle of like probably a, what was once a, um, you know, probably a native natural area, not really, but you know, that's what humans do. So, but the, but, yeah. the, but what the vibe within it's like, it's, it re just reminds me of when I was a kid growing up surfing, like these little, we used to ride this little reef. And everybody knew each other, and everyone just waited their turn because it was like it was like a little es escalator thing. It was like you got your wave, or you wiped out, and then you it was you had to wait your turn, and then it was the next guy's turn, and then you were all sitting so close to each other that you knew each other and talked to each other, and were all friends and hooted and all that sort of stuff. And that it's just yeah, it seems like that's. I'm sure that still exists in places, you know. So maybe. I hope so because it, it's that's the beauty of surfing is the is the you know it's the camaraderie and and the sharing of it with people you know I mean that's that's definitely one thing I talk about in the movie and I couldn't I could that's why you know when you were asking me like um, how did how did you work out what the film was going to be about like going to the waveful was that because I saw that sharing. And then that's when I realized, oh, yeah, that's really what surfing was, you know, surfing was sharing, you know. So, yeah. Because at its heart, that's what it is. So. It's beautiful. Um, it's spot on, too. Like, I had not identified that virtue in the wave pools prior, but I've absolutely experienced it as you stated it, you know. So I think that's really it's so easy to be cynical about the wave pools that I kind of overlooked that essential element. Oh, well, that, that's to me what blew my mind about it when I got yeah. there, you know, and it's a, that's, that, that, that happened. That was seriously the end. Like to me, that was the end of the film. Like when, I, because I went, I went there not even knowing I, I, I went there to test George's board. 
right? Because George, George had like, George had made this tiny little board, and I'd ridden it a couple of times at, up at, out in the surf where I live, and it's just like unbelievable surfboard. Like it's just it's so small and it's just so fast and it's just. But do you think I could actually get a proper wave on it anywhere without like? Because it's such a small board, and you know my age, I just couldn't get into any crowded lineup and actually catch a wave on it without just what I was talking about before happening. And then I said to George, I said, "What if, what if I took it to the wave pool? What do you reckon?" Because I'd seen the barrels. He said, "That's a great idea." You know, like he loved the idea of that. You know, like because because he, he said, "Yeah, you'll be able to." you'll be able to like get, you know, because it's quite similar. It's not the same wave every time, the wave pool, but it's quite similar. He said, yeah, you'll be able to feel things. You'll be able to change things. You'll be able to come in and tweak it. And so that's why I went there. Like I went there to test that board. And, but then when I got there, I just, I experienced all that stuff. And I was just like, this is just incredible. Like what's happening here, you know, like in the safe, like I was watching these people like learn and the safety of it. Yes. just these, you know, they had instructors helping these people learn. There was like girls, like a couple of girls just hanging in the whitewater, like learning by themselves, like completely safe. And it was just like this amazing thing. And, I, and then obviously the stuff I was talking about with the, with the sharing in the lineup of the joy. And that's, that's when I was just like, oh, yeah, right. That's what it's actually all about, you know. And so that's what helped me finish the movie, you know. So, yeah. Um, which is so weird, isn't it? Because like what you said, it's, it's so easy to be cynical about all that stuff, you know, and just go, oh, that's not surfing, you know. But to me, it's so weird that, that that's more surfing than what surfing's become in a way because you are sharing this crazy experience with people and you're actually genuinely being like nice to people, you know. Which, yeah. So, you know, it does... Could the lineups become like that again? I don't know. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah, I, I don't know how we would get back there. Well, I don't know. Maybe if everybody learnt to surf in wave pools, they would take then take that, the, what they learnt of sharing and stuff like that in wave pools out into the lineup, and it might change. You know, I don't know. I just could you imagine if that's what happens? I don't know. Maybe you know. I mean, I'd, you'd love to think it could happen. So I know you'd probably just. I mean, there's always going to be alpha males or alpha women out there that'll want to dominate everything, but yeah, you can't do that in a wave pool. Like, you actually cannot do it. You can't, like, when everyone's lined up, you can't just, like, push in front of them and go, oh, I'm going. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be outcast immediately. Oh, mate, someone would knock yeah. you out, you know? You just yeah. can't do it. Whereas in the ocean, yeah. people just do it, like, relentlessly, you know? So, yeah. And the other thing with the wave pool, you actually can't get in the way, really, like... It's because the wave washes you through out of the lineup, and then you can't. So you can't, you can't be ignorant and paddle through the middle of lineups, or because you think that's the quickest way to get out there. You know, like you actually have to go around and come back around. You know. Yeah. So it's sort of you know. Everybody respects the order. That's for sure. It's it's interesting, isn't it? So. It is. So, yeah. Good take, and it's a perfect. Uh perfect way to wrap up the film and a perfect way to come back to where we started this conversation so yeah thanks david um, i appreciate it so, right on thanks right, andrew good luck, good luck with you um kid so yeah thank you yeah, it's a, we need I it say one thing yeah as slow as it all seems like it's gone at the moment it, it's just a whirlwind because 
in 20 years, you'll just be like, what happened at that time? So, anyway. That's what everybody says. What's your recommendation for um, appreciating, like slowing down those moments and appreciating them? Fuck, I, I, it's hard to say, man. Like, just, I, you know how slow it seems like it's going? Yeah. It's probably just the best thing is just to like just stay in that try and stay in that slowness because it's just like the oldie it just goes so fast like i know you know and i mean i'm looking at i'm looking at my 20 year old daughter you know and my soon to be 17 year old son it's ridiculous you know and then i look out like where i live like i sent you that picture this morning of it and it's like nothing's changed out there <laughs> yeah so it's like we're just this little fast blip you know so it's yeah if you Everybody, everybody says the exact same thing. And I understand it to be true because I have seen each year goes faster than the previous one. I just don't know how to pump the brakes. I don't think you can, but I mean, how fast is the world spinning? You know, what is it? It's 22,000 miles an hour or something, isn't it? Is it? I think so. Like, I'm pretty sure it is. Like, have a Google it. I think it, I think it's, so it's spinning pretty fast. So like, good luck trying to stop it. (laughs) Well, I, the one thing I'm trying not to do is get annoyed by anything like the late night wake ups. I mean, last night I was in the room with him for probably a total of two hours in the middle of the night on, you know, an hour twice, essentially. And, um, it's easy to get annoyed by that, you know? And so I'm I'm trying to learn to just like appreciate it. Like, look, he's not going to need me in the middle of the night for the vast majority of his life. And so... Right, exactly. So I'm gonna try to just like snuggle up with him and just yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, you know? smell him, you know, like they smell. That's it's nothing like what a baby smells like, you know. And it's you never yeah. you never smell that again, you know. Once they're gone, you don't. That once they've grown up, you know what they? It's like Gus. He stinks. <laughs> go and have a shower, mate. You know. Yeah. So it's like they go from this just incredible smell to like you know. And humans, I guess. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go down and sniff him right now. Yeah, give him a sniff. <laughs> All right, mate. I will. Thanks, David. All right, see ya. See you, mate. Thanks. BigSkyLimited.org is where you can find everything Kidman. Always a pleasure. Uh, I'm not sure if they're still available, but his most recent projects, On the Edge of a Dream and Beyond Litmus, are excellent. They are both book and film bundles and well worth getting. Uh, Find it all on BigSkyLimited.org along with the most recent project. 
Thank you, Andrew Kidman. I appreciate your support and gentle feedback over the years. I am grateful to be connected. And uh, for listeners, just as an aside, apropos of nothing, but one thing that Andrew turned me on to years ago that you may be interested in is Bob Dylan did a weekly one-hour satellite radio show that aired from May 2006 to April 2009, and the entire archive is available on podcast apps. It is called Theme Time Radio Hour. Each episode was a free-form mix of music centered around a theme like weather, money, flowers, whatever. Dylan would read emails from fans, take listener calls. Some of them were fictional, some of them were real. Uh, He would play vintage radio promos and jingles. He would tell jokes, he would recite poetry. He'd play taped messages from celebrities and of course, provide commentary on the music that he was playing in the show. So it's pure gold. There's only about 100 episodes of it. If you like Bob Dylan, this is pure Dylan. It is called Theme Time Radio Hour. Search for it in whatever app you're listening to this episode in. You could probably find it. I know I've found it on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy that. Thank you, Kidman, for that little gem that you gave me years ago. And that's it. Everything that we discussed herein is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. If you would like to support our work, it's five bucks a month. Just set up a subscription on our website. It keeps us in business. And then also be a responsible human being by doing regular skin checks. Just when you get out of the shower, take a look in the mirror, look down at your body, follow the ABCs of skin checks. And if you see anything on your body that looks suspicious, take it to a doctor, go see a dermatologist. People die of skin cancer. And it's totally unnecessary because it's one form of cancer that gives you visual signs early. You just need to spot them. So thank you for that reminder, Sunbum. And also, if you aren't exhausted by my voice and you want to hear more of me weekly, go listen to Spit with Scott Bass, where we cover surf news every week. And then The Grit with Chas Smith, where we provide surf world gossip and lampooning. And then, of course, I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. My name is David Scales. Thank you for listening. Now, of course, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.